The domination of vassals is spoken of in much the same terms as controlling criminals, and the Sutra's arguments for benevolent treatment of vassals are more pragmatic than naively idealistic. And this is, I think, uh, something I want to emphasize through here because we're going to come to this argument that Buddhism failed in India because it was too pacifistic. It's a, almost a lot like the young boys in Tibet who are being disaffected from Buddhism because they think that because of Buddhism, the Tibetans wimped out when the Chinese uh, invaded them. Um, so the, the, the argument for a compassionate regime and a compassionate even foreign policy here is an argument that sort of is, I think, highly pragmatic. It's kind of interesting in that way. So compassion is generally understood in Buddhism as having a magical power to protect. The perfection of wisdom's description of bodhisattvas putting on body armor of compassion is more than metaphorical. One can cite many cases of saints being protected from assassins or vicious animals by manifesting compassion. Even today, the Metta Sutta is recited to protect from snake bite and other dangers in Sri Lanka. The Melinda Panda tells of a prince renowned for his compassion who was struck by an arrow only precisely when he allowed his, his concentration and compassion to lapse. The Seya Jataka, a story about one of the Buddha's previous rebirths, portrays an extreme example of a king who refuses to fight to protect his kingdom, saying, I want no kingdom that must be kept by doing harm. I think this is the kind of idea one usually expects in Buddhism. While imprisoned by the victor, he pities his conqueror for the karmic outcomes of his actions. His captor is then attacked by great physical pain through the power of his victim's compassion. As a, as a result, he's released and his kingdom is returned. The implication is that compassion magically serves to sustain the king's power. Similarly, it's believed in this sutra that the weather, public health, and agricultural productivity are enhanced by the power of compassion. It must be remembered that in their cultural context, these were not supernatural effects, but reflected concrete concerns for the forces at work in the world. It's also true that sometimes what initially appear to be mere formulations of magical thinking may be informed by practical insight. In a 2008 presentation on the moral reasoning of Avadana literature, Andy Ruttman showed how Buddhists viewed moral qualities and karmic merit as a quantifiable form of capital. This is a somewhat magical form of what we would refer, refer to in terms of qualities such as political capital, moral bankruptcy, or the value of consumer confidence, institutional morale, work ethic, or creativity. There's a sense that the benefits of moral values may be entrepreneurially accumulated and developed. The store of those values is a fundamental source of the well-being of a people. The concern with karmic merit goes beyond the impact of ascetical values on a popular culture to a highly pragmatic and self-interested concern for community well-being. In the same way, the Buddhist ethics of violence represent more than a simple allegiance to the values of ascetics. They are part of a comprehensive view of human thriving that values worldly abundance. But in this sutra, as in the, even in the brutally pragmatic Hindu Arthashastra, there are also practical arguments for the protective power of justice and benevolence that go beyond the usual magical sense. A king must recognize that his own policies are a substantial cause of hostile relations and that his own virtue is his first defense, reasoning that has currently been used in regard to the rise of terrorism. An argument reminiscent of the Agunya Sutra's claim that crime arises from poverty 
It is stated here that enemies, attacks, and insurrections arise from unhappiness and dissatisfaction. A king is therefore indirectly protected by his benevolent cultivation of the well-being of his subjects, his vassals, and also his neighbors. It is emphasized that if they are happy and secure, then instead of becoming enemies, they will be allies when enemies do arise. In the same way, a benevolent king will successfully enrich his treasury through gifts and the general prosperity of his realm, while a rapacious and exploitive king will fail. Compassion serves the purposes of domination, of pacification, of security, enrichment, and cultural well-being. Although the sutra allows for war, it does so only under special conditions and with special restrictions on its conduct. In a graded series of skillful means, a king must first befriend, must first try to befriend, then to help, and then to intimidate his potential enemy before resorting to war. Should attempts to succeed without armed conflict fail, the king is then instructed how to assemble and deploy the various divisions of an army. He is to go to war with three intentions, to care for life, to win, and to capture the enemy alive. Only Zimmerman, uh, based on the Chinese version, correctly translated the phrase for capturing the enemy alive. Basically, three different people worked on this sutra, unknown to each other. Um, this is not immediately convincing because the Chinese translation often strives to soften the impact of the violent aspects of the text. However, the Sanskrit phrase corresponding to the, to the Tibetan Soksumwa, Jivagraham, occurs often with this meaning in the Jatakas which are the most important Buddhist source for statecraft. The Jatakas frequently valorize intentions to capture the enemy alive or win without bloodshed through intimidation. In comparing the sutra to the Hindu Artashastra literature, which for him includes the Manusmirti and the Dharmashastras, Zimmerman states, there can be hardly any doubt that the main effort of the Hindu warrior must have been directed towards annihilation of the enemy. However, the Arthashastra, Manusmirti, and the Shantiparvan all agree that non-combatants are those surrendering, fallen, disarming, fleeing, or petrified shall not be harmed. The concern to care for life in the sutra also includes the well-being of all innocents, including animals and the spirits that dwell in trees and water. In contrast to most Hindu Dharmashastras, the sutra forbids burning homes or cities, destroying reservoirs, orchards, or confiscating the harvest. This condition is extended to what might be called infrastructure in general, quote, all things well-developed and constructed. Would have been a nice set of priorities for the invasion of Iraq. Having come to war with these preconditions and restrictions, the king still faces a problem that plagued the imagination of Indian warriors. I'm going back to that image of Arjuna. How to reconcile the necessity of battle with the horrific karmic consequences of killing. It's well known that the Buddha denied the idea that those who die in battle automatically go to heaven. However, the Jataka tales are full of stories of Buddhist warriors, often the Buddha himself in a past life, and occasionally, and occasionally uh, romanticize their heroic death in battle. Karen Lang highlights Chandakirti's expression of this problem. Quote, how can it be right for someone who has no compassion, who has cruel intentions towards his enemy, who enthusiastically attacks in order to kill, and raises his sword with a view towards bringing it down on his enemy's head to go to heaven when the enemy kills him. The key element in this statement is his repeated reference to intentions. As we saw earlier, 
Chandrakirti argues later in the same text that one without these negative intentions and with compassion may engage in violence to protect others or to prevent a greater number of deaths. The sutta gives the same answer for the warrior that is found for bodhisattvas elsewhere. Quote, a king who is well prepared for battle, having used skillful means in this way, meaning he's taken every means he can to avoid warfare, even if he kills or wounds opposing troops, has little moral fault or demerit, and there will certainly be no karmic, no bad karmic result. Why is that? It is because that action was conjoined with intentions of compassion and not abandoning. On the basis of having sacrificed himself and his wealth to, perfect, to protect living things and for the sake of his family, wife, and children, there is immeasurable merit and even strongly increases. If he does so with compassionate intentions, a king may make great merit through warfare, so warfare becomes auspicious. The same argument is made earlier in relation to torture, and the sutra now proceeds to make common sense analogies to doctors or parents who compassionately inflict pain to discipline and heal without intending harm. Zimmerman expresses surprise at the reference to compassion here and describes it as an irrelevant, sporadic addition out of keeping with the context. The sutra, he says, fails to address the obvious contradiction between his, his obligation to protect sentient beings and his warfare activities. He states that the pair killing with compassion was incompatible with the basic Buddhist ethics. Based on a similar perspective, Ronald Davidson argues that Buddhists were ultimately unable to find a satisfactory answer to the conundrum of how to uncompromisingly stand by their pacifist values without alienating or disempowering the kings on whom they depended for endowment and protection. He refers to the much-discussed patches from the Bodhisattva Bhumi supporting compassion and killing as an example of the fact that Buddhism was not unequivocal, as he says, in its pacifism. He sees this as an equivocation based on two misassumptions, which, like Zimmerman's understanding of compassion and killing, would be unfairly identified with his work, as they've been common to the field of Buddhist studies. The first misassumption is that this is an isolated passage representing an exceptional view. In fact, the validation of compassionate violence made by a Sangha here is found throughout Mahayana literature and is common to its <coughs> ethics, not an, an unusual exception. It's recently been more expansively uh, stated in a, a new book on Buddhism and violence that, quote, needless to say, this stance is particularly favored by the consciousness only and school and, and esoteric Buddhism. However, the Madhyamakas, Aryadeva, Chattakirti, and Shantideva all agree on this basic point found in many sutras. The bodhisattvas may do what is forbidden or inauspicious, including killing, and make merit as they remain compassionate. The second misassumption is that the Sangha's passage is misread as an ethic of self-sacrifice, which allows the Bodhisattva to engage, quote, allows the Bodhisattva to engage in the slaughter of thieves or brigands so that the Bodhisattva could go to hell instead of the criminals. The Bodhisattva replaces himself for the other and suffers in his stead, unquote. Obviously, this would be a very problematic model for a king. You know, that you're going to go to war and basically you're sacrificing yourself. You're going to go to hell for the sake of First, it should be noted that a Sangha recommends stealing from thieves, not slaughtering them. Killing is for the purpose of preventing crimes with similar karmic results. 
It's true that Asanga says that the Bodhisattva killer is compassionately freeing his victim from the karmic outcome of great crimes and has the wish that he, rather than the criminal, should be born in hell. However, he goes on to explain that the result of killing with this intention, far from going to hell, is that the Bodhisattva actually becomes blameless and produces great merit. In the Sanskrit, Anapantiko Bhavanti Bahu Chapunyam Prasuyate exactly as in the Satika Parivarta. Again, one could say that the more willing bodhisattvas are to go to hell, the more certain it is that they will not. Asanga's conception of compassionate violence validates not only the prevention of terrible crimes, but also the aggressive removal of vicious rulers from power, a motivation that could be very important for kings. Quote, likewise, the karmic outcome for a bodhisattva establishing compassionate intentions for benefit and happiness who removes from power kings or prime ministers who are fiercely uh, or excessively fierce, merciless, and solely set out to afflict others is that they generate great merit. Now, Davidson goes on to say, quote, this same rubric allows wide latitude in questionable behavior. Evidently, this doctrinal basis was used to justify belligerence on the part of their favorite monarchs." Unquote. He gives the example of the Chinese pilgrim Xuanzang's depiction of King Harsha. However, Xuanzang records neither Asanga's actual argument that Harsha should invoke compassion towards his enemy, nor the argument based on the misreading that he should willingly enter hell. The story depicts Harsha as an oppressed by a vicious anti-Buddhist enemy who killed his father. In his distress, Harsha supplicates the celestial bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara with prayer and offerings. In return for a promise to overthrow an anti-Buddhist king, restore the influence of Buddhism, and rule compassionately, Avalokiteshvara lends his power to Harsha's campaign of military conquest. In fact, although Harsha's general motivation is compassion, the ethic in the example of Harsha is far more unapologetically open to violence and free from conditions than in Asanga's thought or in the Sutra. His war of conquest is not regarded as at all questionable in the legend. In fact, it has the sanction of Avalokiteshvara, the divine personification of compassion. So when, this is a digression, when you think of the Japanese saying that World War II was the great compassionate war, they were not so far out of the realm of normal Buddhist thought as people might actually think. This also belies the idea that Buddhist kings did not go to war to spread Buddhism. Davidson intends to support the argument that there was something fundamentally conflicting in Buddhist support for violence. But Asanga's argument for compassionate violence is broadly and authoritatively attested in Mahayana literature. It's not an ethic of self-sacrifice, but one that offers merit for killing. This sutra is somewhat more expansive in explicitly making compassion and killing an option not just for bodhisattvas, but also for kings. There's no sign that the king addressed in this sutra were regarded as bodhisattvas quite the opposite. And one has to assume that his entire army and those who enforce his punishments would be implicated in his karmic situation and the logic of linking merit to compassion and killing. Davidson also notes inscriptions in Nalanda, the great North Indian monastic university, that glorify the gore-smeared swords of widow-making Buddhist kings, but finds their grisly language weaker and less common than convocal Shaivite inscriptions. There can be no question that both in terms of warfare and harsh penal codes, 
Hindu literature and inscriptions are far more robust and unreserved in their enthusiasm for violent imagery. Davidson makes an important argument here that Buddhist values were much more suited to periods of pacification and stability than to the violent instability of the last centuries of Indian Buddhism, and so were ideologically disadvantaged. However, the force of the argument needs to be reconsidered to the degree that it's based on the normative perception of exaggerated Buddhist pacifism. The location of such inscriptions in a monastic university of vast international prestige suggests that Buddhists, rather than being conflicted or duplicitous, found it appropriate to publicly honor and so validate military violence. The relationship between rhetoric and action is complex. For instance, since despite idealizing an ethic of compassion, Buddhist polities have historically done all the things forbidden in the subject of Varivarta, from aggressive war terror to blinding and capital punishment, as in Tibet. On the other hand, despite their violent rhetoric, the Hindu ethics of violence are deeply intertwined with ideals of dharma and ahimsa, considering the broad success of Buddhism with a remarkable variety of patrons, including Indian rajas, Mongol khans, samurai warlords, and Chinese emperors in diverse political circumstances over several millennia, it seems dubious to attribute the downfall of Buddhism in India to the inability to ideologically support the violence of their protectors. General conceptions of a basic Buddhist ethic broadly conceived as unqualified pacifism are problematic. Compassionate violence is at the very heart of the sensibility of this sutra. Buddhist kings had sophisticated and practical conceptual resources to support their use of force, the show of concern for defense, political stability, and social order through a combination of harshness and benevolence. These resources offer techniques for removing and preventing the causes of hostility, but fully empower the use of warfare when it is deemed appropriate and necessary. Military readiness and intimidation are important elements in a king's responsibilities. Violence is an important tool for criminal rehabilitation, social stability, and military defense. Torture is approved as a means, but not mutilation or execution, and that in a battle, a king should seek to capture the enemy alive. A king may avert fear of karmic retribution by establishing proper intentions, making efforts to avoid conflict, and limiting modes of waging war. The only killing compatible with Buddhist ethics is killing with compassion. Moreover, if a king makes war or tortures with compassion and intentions, those acts can even result in the accumulation of vast karmic merit. Values of compassion were not necessarily in conflict with the political necessities of Indian statecraft, rather than an awkward extension of ascetical values into the realm of power politics. There was a recognized symmetry between dharmic rule, compassion, and the acquisition and retention of power. In the course of orally presenting this research at conferences and university lectures series, I've experienced how distressing it can be for Buddhists that the idea uh, that compassionate warfare and torture can be advocated in Buddhist scriptures. I would ask those who find this disturbing to also consider that this text advocates that warfare should only be pursued when all other means have failed, that benevolence is a state's first defense, that we must take responsibility for the exploitation which creates our own enemies, 
that physical punishment may only be undertaken from a compassionate intention to benefit the recipient, that the destruction of infrastructure and the natural environment is a mistaken policy, and above all, that a nation will thrive or fall based upon its capacity for compassion rather than the ethics of self or national interest. 